Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My guest this week is Kevin Eastman. Uh, Kevin has been doing comics for, what did you say it was, 25 years since the Turtles <laughs> launched? 30 years almost? 28. Yeah. Something like that. 28 for the Turtles, yeah. And, and some of my own self publishing before then. So. And me, myself, being of the right age, I was definitely uh, reading a lot of Turtles as a young lad including my uh, massive collection of turtle toys and I always remember getting the uh, the sewer play set was a particular uh, loved cherished toy at a certain time uh, <laughs> that's funny first of all thank you first and, and second you reminded me just it's funny that um, I done a couple signings recently and 
and what's different about uh, when you were buying turtle toys when you were younger. Typically, at your age, you're buying them. They were behind you stood a, a fairly pissed off parent who spent all night putting together a turtle sewer playset on Christmas Eve. Um, <laughs> and so the attitude was a little different. The kid was excited to be there. The parent was sort of like, "Oh, you don't know how much money I wasted on those stupid turtle toys." To these days, finding it's almost generational. It's weird. It's like, um, and very, very cool. It's absolutely cool, rather, is that um, it's uh, something that the father uh, or the parent had grown up uh, enjoying the turtles and now was sharing with their with their children, which is uh, a pretty pretty awesome thing to, to to be part of. So the parents don't mind as much putting together the large play sets. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe some of those some of those old turtle toys they sold on eBay and made some money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's uh, it's interesting to me uh, looking at your work and just kind of reflecting my own interest in comics coming from reading certain things and kind of how I've grown into it and um, one of the big things right now it's the 35th anniversary of Heavy Metal and I, lately kind of you know concurrently I've also been kind of looking at this European work and really getting into a lot of these European creators and um I kind of feel like as we jump in to talk about heavy metal, maybe we can talk a little bit because uh, this year was also the passing of Mobius, one of the founders mm -hmm. of Mattel Herlant. Um, and I don't know if you want to kind of talk about how that guy was an influence sure. on you. Well, Tony, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, um, it's amazing how intertwined um, my, my personal journey and, and heavy metal and the turtles are. And that I tell people truthfully is that, um, my discovery of Heavy Metal Magazine in, the, in 1977, I bought the first issue off the newsstand, and it's almost that um, I was at a point where, um, you know, at that age, I'm 50 now, I just turned 50 a couple of days ago, um, at that age I was growing out of, and probably actually a couple of years past growing out of, you know, traditional comics code approved um, superhero comics. They were a bit juvenile, and I, but I still loved them, uh, you know, my old comics, but along comes Heavy Metal, and I say that Heavy Metal help me create the turtles so that I could then in turn buy heavy metal. <laughs> um, and here's a story basically is that, you know, discovering heavy metal at the time that I was getting tired of traditional American comics, um, or thinking I should be tired of American comics, traditional American comics. Here comes, um, heavy metal magazine showcasing not only the works of, um, European geniuses like, uh, Mobius and Belial and, uh, um, uh, um, Juliet and, uh, so many others. Um, but also they showcased a lot of uh, American uh, contemporaries, underground artists like Richard Corbin and Von Bode. I mean, both those guys were in the first issue, I believe, um, mm -hmm. Von Bode was. Um, and so what that kind of led me to is the two things. One was that um, I realized, oh, my goodness, you can tell any kind of story you could ever imagine in comic book form. It wasn't just superhero comics that we'd grown up on, um, even though I liked, you know, war comics and weird war and that kind of stuff, but I'd never been exposed to underground comics. And along comes guys like Richard Corbin, which I really uh, gravitated towards. Um, and then my pursuit of discovering more Richard Corbin work, I found underground comics and self-publishers like, you know, Corbin Sanagor, Robert Crumb. Um, you know, I grew up in Maine, so I used to make trips down to, um, you know, Million Year Picnic and, and, you know, comic stores in Boston where you could buy, you know, go through these bins and buy, like, you know, rip-off comics and, you know, Slow Death and, uh, you know, all these awesome underground artists. But to me, that was kitchen sink uh, mm -hmm. and so that really focused you know my direction of my desire is that um, you know having originally been inspired by Jack Kirby 
is an example as a, as a guy that wrote and drew his own comic books. Um, I found these underground artists that wrote and drew their own comic books. My, all my earliest submissions were to underground publishers. I didn't send stuff to Marvel and DC. And so um, being in tune with undergrounds, thanks to heavy metal, it tuned me into guys like Dave Sim, who was self-publishing Cerebus, um, Wendy and Richard Pini, uh, with Elquest and other um, contemporary self-publishers. Um, when the Turtles came around, you know, after I met Pete, we were had come up with the idea of the Turtles. We um, decided that self-publishing was the way to go, as opposed to trying to put it into a bigger company and do the exactly the kind of comic story um, that we wanted to do. Um, end up and thus, you know, it, it ended up that we did that. We ended up owning it. We ended up owning the copyright trademark, and we ended up fully in control of our characters, so that when you know, there was the opportunity to exploit them into licensing and other things. You know, we had full control over that. Thus, we benefited from the success of that. And so I was able to have enough money to buy Heavy Metal <laughs> when it became available for sale. So I always say Heavy Metal helped me create the turtle so I could buy Heavy Metal. Um, but it is a very true and uh, specific path of what Heavy Metal exposed me to, um, uh, not only for European comics and the mind-blowing work of all these guys that we talked about, but also the American artists and self-publishing and and down that path for uh, uh, trading the turtles and, and owning it. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's just a, just a short 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was asking specifically, um, was Mobius, because um, I was looking at the 35th anniversary issue and you guys were able to uh, reprint an old uh, Mobius story. And one of the things that a lot of folks talking about right now is how hard it is to get Mobius stuff in English. Um was there any challenges in printing that story in the new issue, or was it just you had the rights to reprint it from previous issue? That's pretty much what it was. And in fact, you know what's interesting is that um, you know we had uh, you know Heavy Metal as a company, we'd gone after um, a couple of different at a couple of different junctures the rights to be um, the, the the publisher of all things Mobius, and and it's sort of you know kind of convoluted in that. Um, the rights are kind of caught up in a little bit of this, a little bit of that over there. They had obligations and deals to other possible opportunities here, and they didn't end up, you know, defining any one of them. So I think that, you know, that, that to me, much like, you know, looking at massive amounts of, um, you know, works like Richard Corbin and other guys like that that just aren't in print anymore, digital or otherwise, um, you look at the same with Mobius and so many European artists that, uh, you know, that we've all been exposed to in back issues and issues of heavy metal, but you just can't find otherwise. And I think that that's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the one cool thing that'll come out of this, you know, digital comics age is that maybe we'll be able to see, you know, access all that material, you know, not only in a physical form for old guys like me who still love these, you know, would love to have a nice hardcover, series of hardcover books collecting, you know, classic Mobius works, but also, you know, for other younger audiences to be exposed to them in the digital form. That's the way, you know, whatever way it gets to them, I think that would be. That'd be awesome, and I have to tell you that I mean, you know, Mobius is one of those guys that I think is, you know, is just iconic, is legendary, is, um, you know, you could point to a series of guys um, of many, 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 many talented people in the field, but he's one of those guys that was um, uh, a game changer. He was one of the guys that sort of an, an innovator. I mean, that that really changed the way people approach comics and and, and do comics, and and still today do comics. Um, and so it's, uh, it, was, it was very, very um, sad and heavy metal 35th year to lose such an icon. Uh, very, mm-hmm. very sad. So the question is, if you're able to reprint one story, is there anything to stop from being able to reprint other stuff through the magazine? or? 
Is it no, we it's that complicated? Oh, it's that complicated. No, we had <laughs> that particular story we had the rights to. It was from an earlier um, contract that we had for the magazine, which gave us uh, rights because we uh, try to, as specifically and carefully as we can, respect you know all artists' rights to the material. And um, all the material that I buy and have bought since I've owned the magazine, which is now 21 years, um, we buy pretty much traditionally one-time English language rights only um, uh, and pay a fee for that. And then if we reprint it, we go back to the artist or the publisher and, and ask for those rights again and, and continue to, you know, much like the music industry and other things that artists should continue to make money off the works that they created, we go back and, and purchase those rights um, every time we use them. But in this case, um, though we couldn't get any Mobius material, but we just had this one grandfather story that I was so desperate to include something Mobius and, and the 35th anniversary. We were just lucky to have that um, grandfather, and uh, you know, and you know, hopefully it will lead to you know somebody will be you know if it's us that would be even cooler. But be, <laughs> I'd love to see that, that material reprinted. Um, yeah, the sooner the better. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the choice of the other folks to include in the 35th anniversary. Um, I think you had some Segura, maybe I can't remember. I tried to pick, yeah. It was a, the the cast of characters were um, to me, you know, because I have done um, uh, I, when I when I came when I first bought Heavy Metal, one of the first collections I did was um, Heavy Metal's Greatest Hits, and then we did uh, 15th anniversary, then we did 20th anniversary. Um, for the 25th anniversary, we did the uh, we did a cover book, which was showing showing all of the covers. Um, for all 25 years, and so with this particular version, this newsstand special, I wanted to pick the original cover by Nicolette and uh, have a couple contemporary artists um, give me their version of, uh, of that particular design, uh, and the material that I picked inside were was stuff that I had not reprinted anywhere else, so it sort of, you know, I wanted to make it special in that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, another Serpieri story or, or Bluff or something that you've seen in other collections. These stories weren't reprinted in any other versions which you know hopefully would make it that much more special um, mm -hmm. so they will can pick in that fashion uh, you know, unique to this particular issue one thing that's going on right now um, is during the Tundra days you've done a lot of work with uh, with Alan Moore um, and you'd been involved in the uh, was it the creators the bill of creators rights and yep. And I'm just wondering, just kind of on a look back, right now we're seeing what's happening with the Watchmen, um, with the before Watchmen monstrosity, and and I'm wondering just thoughts on kind of, kind of this comparison between stuff like that happening and things like uh, the success of Image, and any reflections on that, and like where we've come and kind of how we've stepped back. Totally. You know, what's what's really interesting is that I've been talking to Dave Sim recently, um, and we were talking, I think the, um, and I'm getting old, mind you, I think it's the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Bill of Rights, it was next year. Um, but uh, I think it's it's around the corner that the 25th anniversary, um, it's either the 20th or the 25th. Mm -hmm. But Dave had, Dave had mentioned that, you know, when we initially worked on the Creator Bill of Rights, it was in the Hotel Northampton in Northampton, Massachusetts, and it was a handful of, you know, Steve Bissett and Tottleben and Rick Feach and Peter Laird and myself and a bunch of uh, other local artists, uh, Steve Murphy, and um, he said, you know, what we should do is we should actually all get together and actually hold a, a big reunion and maybe invite anybody else who would like to come along um, on this particular date at this particular time. And I'll get back because we, 
I kid you not, we literally talked about this three days ago. <laughs> um, and uh, and I said, Dave, that's a great idea. I'm 100% in. I mean, Heavy Metal Magazine is located in East Hampton, Massachusetts. It's still, you know, that valley area. Peter still is in the area. It's still home of the turtles and my wife's family. It's still home, very much home to me. Mm-hmm. So I said, we should definitely, you know, we get there pretty regularly. I said, we should definitely do that. But going to the specific intent, um, one of the things that I found interesting is that our intent with the Bill of Rights um, was was quite simply um, informational, if you will. It was sort of a we weren't telling you know uh, people what they should do. We were creating a document that told them these things you need to be aware of. And you know we all came from a field where we stand on the shoulders of giants like Jack Kirby's and, and Jerry Robertson's and Bob Kane's and so many people that. Um, the structure of the business was a work-for-hire business, so a lot of times that these guys, the genius that these guys had and the things that they created, they never got the chance to benefit from like we did with the Turtles or Dave Sim did with Cerebus and a lot of other characters do, uh, people that don't create our stuff do today. And so what we created the Bill of Rights for was, look, for new guys coming into the field, the decisions you make when you enter into the field of comics or entertainment or movies or anything, these things, you know, be aware of your rights first, so that if you choose personally to give them away, then that's a, that's a decision that you're making consciously, fully aware, and not being blindsided, so you can never go back and say, oh, I didn't know, or I didn't know, mm-hmm. somebody told me this is the way the business should be, so we, when we initially put it out, we said, these are the 15, 25, 30 things that we want you to be aware of, that if you choose to give away one, none, or all of them, it is a decision that you've made. Um, Initially, its reaction was one of almost the complete opposite. People were looking like, hey, who the hell are these guys telling us what our rights are? And we were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're not telling you anything. We're just giving you, we're just sort of, we're just making you aware of like, you know, you can do whatever you want. We're not telling you how to live your life, how to choose, you know, how you enter the business and what you do with it once you get here um, specifically. Um, but just be aware of the things that you have, the options you have before you that if you choose to give them away, and that's a conscious decision that you've made, and you've made it with full, you know, awareness, and, and that's okay. We're not saying you should or you shouldn't; just saying be aware of them. Um, and so, when I, you know, continued to publish and work on the turtles, um, then later selling my rights to the turtles to Peter, and then Peter, in turn, selling to Viacom. Those are all conscious decisions that we had as creators of that property. When I set up Thunder Publishing, Thunder Publishing was um, designed to be quote-unquote, the Apple records of comics, you know, the same kind of, you know, creator-owned, creator controls, um, lion's share of the full profits and the proceeds go back to the artists. Decisions of ownership and control of the property uh, lie with the artist and the publisher almost uh, more solely as a vehicle to get your material out there to the world. Um, uh, and I always said that it's not going to end up the same way Apple Records ended up with, and unfortunately it did. It just wasn't a a structure that was self-supporting enough um, and I didn't have enough turtle money to keep it going the way I'd hoped to mm-hmm. um, but I don't certainly regret any of the things with Tundra um, that were done I mean I loved uh, each one of those projects that I published from you know Rolf Stark's Reign to Alan Moore's um, Lost Girls to David McKean's Cages or Violent Cases or Michael Allred's you know uh, Madman you name you know everything that I published I I looked at, I liked it, I, I, I made that decision to publish it for those reasons, um, and that's how it happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, whatever it went on to, I think when it got to the point where, um, as a business person, I was spending 
far too much uh, time running the actual business, uh, actually taking a step back, being a business slash creative person, I was spending so much time on the business side of my adventures, whether it be at this time my own heavy metal magazine, I had founded and, and had structured Tundra Publishing, I branched off into Tundra UK, which is the liaison with a lot of the, a lot of the UK creators that we were working with. I founded Words and Pictures Museum. Um, I was still working um, almost full-time doing Turtles, uh, and I had a family. I had no time to do any of the creative stuff that I wanted to do, and so I kind of reevaluated some things and looked at, you know, this is where the partnership um, and the structure came with Dennis Kitchen was. Uh, Dennis was um, more of a business person and wanted to focus more on the business side, so I said, this is a great fit. Dennis can do the you know, can finish complete the kid business side and take over the business side of Tundra, continue doing kitchen sink projects, merge the two, and then go back to creating. That's where, you know, after five or six years, uh, that's where Tundra transitioned into the kitchen sink era, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because through, it seems, even the challenges and failures through Tundra that set up so much to be able to work in the future through some of the work that Dark Horse has done and predominantly Image is basically taking that model and using it only with material that is more um, audience friendly well I think that you know what's interesting is I think that it was the business was heading that way anyway Mm -hmm. I think that you know you had landmarks and you had things that were going on with Alan Moore and the Watchmen and the structure that DC and what was happening there you had you know, key innovators like, you know, Frank Miller doing Ronin and then branching off and wanting to do more of his own creator on stuff. You had a lot of different things. It's almost like the entire American audience, you know, as the world shrunk, so to speak, that more and more European material was exposed to American audiences here, more manga and other related material was exposed to audiences. You started seeing all these crossover uh, cultures um, and you see the, the you know, the Comics Code appro- the Comics Code Authority was still a an enforceable um, system when I first started reading comics, and that went away. Um, and people started because that was you know the Comics Code Authority was put into place to get rid of comics for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, comics are for kids. That's why you had the Comics Code, and we had rules, and it was like the, you know Motion Picture Association of America, those kind of thing. You had to keep it. They didn't even have a rating system. You either made it in. You got the rating and you got to be distributed, or you didn't get the rating, you didn't. Um, otherwise, you were re- regulated to sell publishers and underground comics, and you could find those in head shops. Yeah. But I think that the world was heading that way anyway. Things like Tundra and, and Image, who had started before Tundra, and there were other small capital, Pacific Comics, other companies emerging and doing business around that time that um, uh, the people that were like me that had grown up on superhero comics. Um, grown out of a lot of superhero comics but still love the medium um, wanted to grow up with it and they wanted to do the kind of comics as older audiences that they wanted to read you know that's why you have you know when Eclipse did things like Miracle Man with Alan Moore and, and you know some of the stuff that they were doing there was like treating you know a, a whole different take on superheroes like, like what a superhero you know for an older audience you know again crossing the the divide from you know Stan Lee and Jack Kirby you know Marvel superhero comics to you know what was going on in Europe with a lot more edgier, uh, intended for older audiences mm-hmm. kind of material. So um, I think it's funny that you see the kinds of things that the Image was doing. Um, it's it's bizarre in that when the Turtles first came out, um, the Turtles were for the first big crossover um, 
self-publishing um, adventures or events in that it created what they called the black and white boom and bust. Yeah. When when the when the first issue of the Turtles came out, only three thousand copies were done, and within you know a relatively short period of time, uh, a couple months, a dollar fifty comic is worth twenty five dollars. By that time, the next year, you had twenty five to thirty adjective, adjective, adjective noun comics with doing initial press runs of um, you know 100,000 to 200,000 copies and there was a lot of self publishing and it ended up you know imploding you know probably wiping out 1500 or more comic stores amount of business when the collector market went away and then comic books after that sort of filtered through the process of comic books went back to what it was before which is the people that remained um, in comics were the people that were buying and reading comics couple years later you have Image coming uh, and they started this whole revolution where again it came, became a huge collectible thing on the collector's radar which you know so it brought into a business that had not been there before um, hundreds of thousands if not you know a million or more collectors coming in to speculate so I remember you know in, in the days of uh, uh, when Image really first came out and started cooking on all burners that um, Jim Lee telling me and John Lee telling me they wouldn't even go to a press on a comic book if the orders fell below a million copies. I just can't, I mean, can you imagine these days <laughs> somebody printing a million copies of anything? I remember when the, the Death of Superman came out, I think they boasted there was seven million copies of the Death of Superman printed. Um, yeah. That comic will never, ever, ever, ever be worth anything, ever. I like remember. most of those... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I remember working in a comic store and selling them for twenty five bucks each and like why? Yep. Why would anyone a, bother? Yep. And it was a short and that was a major implosion and it was a short term memory and then when all the uh the collectors went away it was the comic market was left to the people that, you know, kept it alive in the first place prior yeah. to the collectors coming in and doing this, even though lots of people went out of business and companies went out of business and distributors went out of business and comic stores went out of business so um what's left is the people that's reading it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's interesting now is that sort of what you have have left. I don't see um, any particular comic or any particular series that's out there that's bringing in a lot of new kids into comics. Um, I think the comic audience is um, traditionally, you know, male, older, and you know, even you know, I remember when the DC came out with the new uh, DC Fifty Two. You know, there was a couple of titles that I had picked started picking up that I had not picked up before or not picked up in a long time. And I noticed in going to the comic store that I go to out here in L.A., um, either Golden Apple or Meltdown Comics, is that a lot of the guys buying those titles are all guys my age. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, oh, man, have you seen the new Catwoman? Man, man. Uh, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? But it's like it wasn't like we were we were sort of shoving aside, you know, 12-year-old boys or kids trying to get to them first. It was just other older guys like me. Um, in fact, that goes... I think on to um, slightly differently, but still in the same vein. Is like when you look at the success of the new IDW Turtles comic that I've been doing, which I'm having absolutely hands down the time of my life uh, doing it. Um, is that the guys and the people that are buying it, for the most part, are long-term fans of the Turtles. Mm-hmm. I look at you know review after review of people reading the Turtles, and it's like you know I hadn't seen an issue since the original black and white series and I love it or you know uh, and you know I'm, I feel, I'm feeling a couple things one is incredibly grateful that that, the, that they're not only picking it up and they're actually enjoying it um, but that they're picking it up and uh, uh, 
and uh, you know, I'd love to think, you know, it's bringing in a whole bunch of uh, new kids into these comic stores, helping you know these these small proprietors and these business owners make more money, stay in business, so they can you know sell more comics to older guys like me and everybody else. But I think that it, you know, um, if anything's going to um, introduce new people to comics, it's going to be big event things like uh, the Avengers movie, which you know I was joking to somebody, not really that that much is like I said the movie was so good I practically wept I thought it was so fantastic the perfect icon you know that's I mean I grew up reading the Avengers and, and the Defenders and Wolverine and Iron Man and Daredevil and, and all this stuff and it was like to see a movie done that well in my opinion um, it was fantastic it was enjoyable and, but seeing it resonate to a younger audience that's where I think we're going to pick up hopefully new people that will go into comics or buy you know hopefully not just Marvel comics but all kinds of other stuff as well and if we get them into the comic stores and they buy comics and they like the medium they like the art form then I think if they they like that they'll stick with it and eventually buy you know more underground comics or more uh, you know self-published comics and more um, copies of heavy metal the so interesting, I can do another 35 years the interesting thing with the with the Avengers movie is um, it's also created this side dialogue of renewed interest in how creators are treated um and kind of royalties and stuff because it's very clear it's very open that none of the creators involved with Avengers creation get any money I mean Jim Starlin didn't even know about the ending of the movie till he sat there and watched it um oh. <laughs> it dude that's tough you know it's like, I tell you that you know I'm the I'm the hugest you know hugest Jack Kirby fan in the world and mm-hmm. uh, uh well you know well me and a lot of people could say that but it's like you know, and when I tell you things like I mentioned earlier that we, we literally stand on the shoulders of giants is that, you know, most of my best ideas came from ideas that had already been, you know, it's my interpretation of ideas already explored by guys like Jack Kirby and Frank Miller and other people. I mean, Turtle started as a parody. Um, but I think that, you know, what's what's deeply saddening about, you know, that time period when these guys created that there was a work-for-hire system and that um, even as the system evolved, um, you know, I was friends with, you know, guys like Mike Kaluta and, and Bernie Wright and stuff that still, you know, had to do work for hire if they wanted to work on the characters that they created or, or work for work in the system. And, and that system was still just transitioning. I mean, Frank Miller created Elektra for Marvel and Marvel owns it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was just sort of the, the, the part of it where you look at like, you know, you think that the system would look back at the guys that helped the genius of the guys that helped build the system and they'd want to reach back and compensate for them but I think that you know it's just not the way of the world and I think it opens the door to all kinds of you know legal you know ramifications that I think would bankrupt them if everybody sued them for you know uh, a foothold that they would have and it is um, it's criminal and it's a shame and it's unfortunate um, in every way shape and form um, but it's um, you know I don't know it's, uh, yeah. it's like it's a battle that you go like, man, it sucks. It, it's yeah, it's something like I kind of like. It's a big caveat for me when discussing something like the Avengers of how it's like this exciting moment, where it's also like it's also kind of this recognition. Like I read, uh, someone asked Tom Spurgeon um, what he was more against uh, the Avengers movie or the Before Watchmen thing, and his his take was, well, I'm, I would love to see an Avengers movie that I'm fine with it's the fact that there's no uh, 
recognition or recompensation for the creators. But meanwhile, the, the Horror Watchmen is just a really sad cash grab. Um, <laughs> sorry if I'm editorializing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's tough. It, it, you know, it, it is a thing because, you know, I look at, um, I grew up, you know, I mean, Watchmen was one of those things that made me go back to the comic store on a regular basis because it was so exciting. That time period with Watchmen and what Frank Miller was doing with The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Return and that kind of stuff. I mean, those, that was a very specific and influential and exciting period. And it is, you know, when you look at, again, that was a turning point um, when guys like Frank were doing stuff like that and Alan Moore was doing stuff like that and losing their rights to the characters. People were, you know, merchandising and capitalizing on their creations and not compensating them. And it changed themselves and that was a, a real turning point for the industry. It's almost like those were the Again, giants that we, you know, the kinds of stuff we're able to do today um, is because, you know, of the unfortunate circumstances that guys like that went through. And, and I think that, you know, it's, um, you know, I, mean, I, I do, you know, as much charity work as I can in my life. And these days, any charitable work that I can do, I turn to um, uh, opportunities like the Hero Initiative, which is a charity that which provides, you know, Assistance and whether it be you know paying medical bills or even rent or food or helping assisting you know specifically creators that um, legends in our time that did not benefit from their own creations and are having a, a, a tough go of it making ends meet. So um, I think that you know you know I just did was part of uh, with Dave Sim and, and a couple other awesome guys um, Russ Heath and stuff doing stuff for the uh, IDW put out a Hero Initiative book. And, Mm -hmm. Those kind of things, but it still doesn't take away from anything uh, that we look back on and go, yeah, it's, a, it's it's these guys, you know, these guys went through hell, um, um, and they 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 fought the fight that you know we now benefit from, and that's uh, that's it's, it's sad, but uh, you know, unfortunate part of the part of our business. That's the, the, the uncomfortable part. You. Um, your work with Kiernishev, it's pretty commendable. Um, you, I'm curious how much money was raised when you sold your, your studio and all its contents. <laughs> um, that was that was awesome. We, the, the final, um, Joel Weinshanker, who owns NECA, um, ended up buying it. I think he paid uh, about $12,000 for it. Um, but uh, um, so um, Hero Initiative got a great check out of that, and more importantly, um, you know, any time that we could help promote Hero Initiative and other things uh, related to it, that's just good for everybody, especially them. Uh, it puts it on somebody's, you know, a lot of people's radar that it perhaps wasn't there before. And the Hero, I think, does a lot of great, you know, uh, programs. And they do, generally, I mean, they just did a fantastic 4-600 um, cover series that uh, uh, Marvel uh, supplied all the materials and, and was helping promote, and they're doing that. And all the benefits go to uh, auctions like that. All go to uh, the Hero Initiative, and they did a DC just did a Justice League last year. What they did similar, I think they did a hundred Justice League covers and, and that kind of stuff. So there is, you know, there is a give back, and it's great to be able to help, uh, even in the smallest way. Is still, you know, it's something, and it's and it counts, and it means a lot. You. Um... You're returning to comics. You are doing the Turtles for IDW. Um, had it been a while since you've been drawing comics? Yes, yes. And, and, and it's funny because, um, you know, I never, you know, I'm so immersed in it. I think, you know, uh, Heavy Metal as a company is the entire staff is, is four people counting me. You know, so I'm up to my neck in comics um, day in and day out, you know, choosing material for the issues and whether it be, 
the books that we do, the artworks, the regular issues of the magazine, uh, those kind of things that I've been doing, uh, 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 you know, collections of some turtle stuff like the autobiography, the body count collections, some other stuff I've been doing, books like um, uh, the the the, the uh, Fistful of Blood with Simon Bisley. Uh, I've always sort of been doing it, but never with the intensity that I did the turtles when I did the turtles and um, had not really done a turtles story since 1996. And the last turtle story I did it was actually with Simon Bisley. We did this book called Body Count, which was a 96-page graphic novel in the end. Very edgy and, and all the audiences kind of turtle thing. So when Ted Adams, um, uh, a long-time friend at uh, IDW, had gotten the right to do the turtles, he called me and said, "Hey, would you be interested in doing uh, uh, doing some covers? And you know, maybe you know, can we tell you what we got going on and maybe get some input?" And uh, he introduced me to Tom Waltz, um, who was the head creative and head writer for the whole thing. And I just thought Tom's ideas and what he wanted to do with it, um, uh, and he deserves all the credit. Um, uh, for the most part, I think that just came up with a fantastic idea and a fantastic approach. And I sort of pitched in as much as I could, idea-wise. But um, I then sort of got really enamored with the project. I said, "Hey, you know, I haven't really drawn turtles in a long time. And besides covers, can I actually do layouts for the first four issues?" Um, not that Dan Duncan, who's the artist that they picked for the series, needed it um, in any way. He's a fantastic artist. But they said, "Yeah, that would be great." It's sort of, and it just, you know, so here I was suddenly doing after not doing anything with turtles in 15 years now helping uh with the plot helping with the the, the, the relaunch uh doing covers and now doing layouts for 100 pages of turtles and i've not done um that kind of linear storytelling and 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 that length and that uh size in a long 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 time and i discovered a couple of things one is that how much i love drawing comic books um and, and two was uh, uh how much i love drawing turtles um i really sort of reminded me of why I got into the business in the first place was simply that. I loved comics. This is what I wanted to do as a career, and it reminded me to sort of look back, look at some other things I had going on, trying to, you know, whether it be trying to direct a movie and trying to do this and doing, you know, development for a TV show on something else I'm doing, you know, some video game stuff and working with David Fincher developing a new heavy metal movie or now with Robert Rodriguez. I said, you know, I need to strip away a lot of this stuff and focus back on what excited me the most, um, and that's drawing comics, and uh, and that's what I'm doing. I I've, I've helped with the relaunch um, for the first 12 issues. Um, Tom Waltz and I just finished writing a Turtles Annual, which is going to be the first and that's coming out this October. This Turtles Annual we're doing is the first Turtle story that I've that I've been not only co-writing, writing with Tom, but I'm actually doing all the art for. Um, and I haven't done that on a Turtle story in 20 years, 25 years. So I'm this October. You know, pending my you know schedule, because <laughs> I'm dropping everything to do it is a 48 page annual that'll be uh, co-written by me and then you know penciled, inked, and done on duo shade by me. Uh, and I'm, I could not be more excited. And that's going to lead into another series that IDW is going to uh, publish of mine uh, that I'm going to also be doing all the artwork and, and writing on as well. I don't know next year called uh, Lost Angeles. That's L O S T Lost Angeles. It was created by Simon Disney and myself, but I, you know, it's funny that getting back into the IDW Turtle series has just blown my mind and really reconnected me with not only comics but my love of comics, and then uh, re-engaged me with the Turtles to the point where I've been able to help and and and, and to my two cents on uh, what Ciro Neely's doing in the new Turtle animated 
Nickelodeon series, which is absolutely fantastic. And then um, Jonathan Leesman, who's directing the new Turtles movie, has brought me in to help him be kind of his wingman on uh, uh, what uh, direction I want to do in the new Turtles movie, which has been a blast. Uh, you know, I'm not coming in as a a a, a property owner or a, 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 I'm a work for hire and I get to consult and, and, and I get to give my two cents, good, bad, or ugly, and they either use it or they don't. Um, and, and there's something liberating about that. Mm-hmm. You don't have as much um, vested in it, I guess. It's yeah, it's it's sort of like you don't have as much vested, in you, which to me you don't do as much second guessing. It's like because sometimes when you when the pressure is really on, um, you know, unless you're a really super confident auteur or or something that you know, you almost tend to overthink it. To like, well, am I you know, I don't want you know, instead of going to your first thought would be. I want to write and draw the. Uh, I want to do the the, the the exact kind of story, the exact kind of movie that I would like to do. Um, you're sort of just, uh, which will never happen <laughs> unless you're doing it all yourself. Um, is that that takes all that stress away? You know, it's sort of like it. You are sort of fed into a system where, you know, back towards the early days of the turtles, that we had to make certain concessions that we made um, consciously, and and you know creator Bill of Rights rightfully in the early days when we were developing the turtles, taking them from a black and white comic book, self-published comic book concept, to a turtles animated series, things like the colored bandanas and, and different changes that were made in the origin story, Pete and I made those together on purpose with a team that was writing them for a specific, much, specifically a much younger audience. Um, and because we own the characters, we can make those decisions. And, and if we didn't like, there's lots of decisions that the world will never know about that we we didn't agree to that they wanted to do because we own the characters. But we, you know, it was compromise, and, and it was something that we we made those decisions. That, uh, I'm funny. curious what Dave Sim would think of the uh, of, of of that kind of position within your creation. Maybe I don't want to know the answer to that. Oh, as far as you know, um, selling the rights to it and, uh, uh, and and doing work for hire on a, on something you created now, you mean? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's it's you know whatever he thought about it personally, um, and I think he would think about it in two ways, and I'm not speaking for him, but I'm assuming is that if he would think that um, that may not be the decisions or the things that I would do, but the fact that um, Kevin as one of the co-creators of the Turtles made a series of decisions, including selling his interest to Peter Laird, and Peter Laird in turn selling it to Viacom, and then Viacom then asking me to work on the Turtles again. It was up to me. Nobody else, nobody put a gun to my head and said, do you want to do this or don't, you know, or else. It was sort of, I made that decision, and I think that at the end of the day, that's what he would respect, which is the decision. Mm-hmm. I had the decision to either decide to do it or not, and I felt comfortable enough to do it, and I think that, uh, you know, again, it's like even... You know, and I talk about, because people would say, well, what do you think about other people doing stuff with the turtles? And people do other turtle stories or that kind of stuff. And I said, look, we've been doing, you know, the entire turtle franchise, the entire turtle universe is built off initially uh, 15 books, 15 comics that Peter Laird and I did. We did 11 issues plus four one-issue microsearch, you know, one-issue one-shot, 15 issues together where we broke, drew, and penciled together the entire thing. After that, we either split chores on the issues with other artists uh, or we're busy running the Turtle Empire, you know, working on 300 
cartoon episodes or the live action movies or all that other stuff um, is that uh, I always loved the fact that we had whether it be Tales of the Turtles, short turtle stories, um, uh, animation writers sort of telling us ideas of what they'd like to do with the turtles, the Archie Turtles comics, um, seeing what other people saw, what other creative people saw within your characters is fascinating. You know, some of the ideas were like, holy shit, I would never do that seriously in a million years, or holy shit, I never thought of that, but I really like that. Um, and then letting them do their creative take on it, and I think they produced some some pretty fantastic results. And, and it may have been, that's not how I would, if I was writing, drawing, and, and finishing a story, it may not be exactly how I would do it, you know, with a structure, story, dialogue, pacing, whatever, but that's how they did it, and uh, uh, I embraced it, and I liked a lot of elements of it. Uh, it uh, there's something amazing fun. about about the fact that there's like Mark Martin Ninja Turtle comics. It's fucking awesome. Excuse me, I if I could... no, no, I'm I... in I'm in Canada. It's okay. Oh good. <laughs> well, thank you. Because Mark Martin is an absolute genius, and that's you know what I love about when Mark Martin did issue 16. I mean, we stopped. Issue 11 was the last um, full-on Eastman and Laird uh, story, and issue 12 Peter did himself. Uh, issue 13, Michael Dooney did. Issue 14, I did with Eric Talbot. Um, uh, and then Mark Martin. You know, so Mark Martin was one of the first guys because we fell in love with uh, his Nat Rat series. And when he pitched us this idea for uh, Turtle 16, we just fell all over ourselves. We said, we, you know, we just loved his work <laughs> and his vision and his and his pacing and his take on the whole thing. It's like, how could you not? Uh, you know, whether you talk about, look at Michael Zuli's, you know, hyper-realistic um you know, almost Audubon Society, you know, uh, real-world mutation version of the Turtles to Mark Bodie's uh, Turtles 18, which is like this, you know, really hyper-cartoony, you know, inspired by his dad's style that, you know, Eric Calvin and I worked on as well. It just, I like the range of being able to have all of that in the same in the same universe is, is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's not like, you know, look, it's like, you know, we, it was not this bizarrely uncommon thing that's never been done before. I mean, how many periods can you look at, a, a, you know, when you look at Daredevil, the entire run of Daredevil, how many of the Gene Colan issues that were really awesome, but then you had Frank Roberts fill-ins that you didn't like particularly as much, or, you know, Captain America when Sal Basimo was drawing him and and, uh, and Vince Coletta was inking him. It wasn't really the best, but it was still good. But then, you know, it, you have different runs different by different artists, different creators that really, uh, you know, Frank Miller. I mean, they're doing Batman. It's like, how long it had been since Batman was cool? Um, and that, that's what, you know, so having other people, you know, work on Turtles is not like, you know, no, nobody can do it. It's ours. But it's sort of, a, it's, you know, part of the industry that we grew up in. And, yeah. Uh, enjoy. There's something also where you kind of, the enjoyment of taking a backseat as you see Corbin taking one of your creations. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like you know I laughed when I thought about Corbin, but I, Corbin was great, and you know such a huge Corbin fan. I remember like the first time I had Simon Bisley draw a turtle, um, he actually uh, drew straps on the shell, like the shell, like it was like a guy <laughs> that strapped. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was a guy that, sh that had this kind of turtle, misshapen turtle head, but he, but the shell was actually strapped on, and he had a full set of you know five fingers and the whole thing, and I'm like. And I and I went to him. I said, Simon, you know that they're. And I showed him all the stuff. He's like, Really? They are? And he's like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at a uh, at melting pot. Um, I read it in prep for this, and I was just howling at the uh, the last page where you guys are standing around the Camaro with the painted hood, 
Um, oh my god. It's it's kind of amazing how it kind of captures a certain point in time, and I almost feel like you guys are like doing a response to like super art housey comics, and he's like, "Fuck you guys, we're gonna get drunk and paint on a car." <laughs> Man, what a cluster of fuck! I mean, you know, it honestly, it's, it's funny that uh, a couple things about that that particular shot, and even that particular collection, is that Melting Paul was my first um, big non-turtle project um, and, and I and I made a lot of assumptions and, and all of them were wrong um, in that um, I I wanted to design and do this story that was set up as something that was um, started bad got worse and ended horribly as a as, as sort of as a as a as a through line as a concept and then but I also wanted it physically to be laid out in a certain way and then actually have um, uh, the, the actual visuals tell carry half the weight of telling the story and so uh, like literally before I went to press I ended up going in and editing out almost half the dialogue that I originally put in there chose to do no no sound effects and, and, and trying to do you know trying to do all, all these things and then I worked with it's the first time I'd worked with Simon basically and, and uh, you know it was hard to keep Simon on continuity and the whole thing is saying unless you know, when I look at that first melting pot collection, unless I told you, you personally specifically, what I what I was trying to do with that story, there's no way in hell by reading it you would ever be able to tell. In fact, I've done that before. I go, they go, people go, hey, that melting pot, whoa, that was something. And I go, well, you know, I was trying to do this. I was trying to say this, this, and this with it. And they go, what? You shouldn't me? I never saw that. And so. I then went on to, in the 30th anniversary of Heavy Metal, I did a 170-page version of it where I went back in and re-edited it, remastered, added a whole bunch of pages, I think added like 45 pages, and retold it in a way um, without Simon Bisley that I think made it a little bit more clearer, but still <laughs> not not quite there. Um, and it was, at this point, I was like, you know what, I just got out of, I don't know, I need to go on to something else, but it was... Um, uh, um, part of the process I think that every you know um, every comic creator has um, good stories and bad stories and, and I've done lots of different stories that, that people haven't seen probably never will probably with good reason uh, but uh, the, the purpose is the same it's like trying to do stories that I would like to read good bad or ugly and hopefully you know if they resonate they resonate if they don't then, you know I'll just keep giving them to my family for Christmas gifts for years to come <laughs> What is it about working with Bisley that you you uh, you find this kind of simpatico with? Because you did that, and you also did Body Count. Um, yeah, Simon is. Um, I like him. He's he's completely out of his mind. He's he's ADHD. He's ADD. He's he's just he's a he's an explosion. He's a genius. I'm actually having. He's one of those guys that like. When I draw, when I write, draw, and tell stories, when I do paintings, and I do stuff, it's it's an epic war. It's, it's it's when I finish a painting, for example, a painting is done for me when it's either I'm either going to throw it away because I think it sucks so badly, or I've made a commitment that it has to be on the cover of something that I'm just going to send it. I've got to send it in. Um, I'm the my 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 own worst critic. I'm this. I have to think the stories work out right the way I envision them in my head. And blah, 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 blah. And then I would work with Simon, and Simon to me was is 100% all natural talent. It just and, and I use this description. I was 
the first time I spent like six weeks in the studio in the UK working with him, I remember one night we were working late, and his studio is a mess. It looked like, you know, Hurricane Katrina came through there, um, and they had never picked it up. It was The stuff stuck everywhere, the shit everywhere. He's working on an old broken kitchen table um, covered in, you know, used and, and broken markers and tools and, and half-open bottles of paint and acrylics, and he's got this painting that he's working on with a half of a plate of chili, half on it, half on it. He's got Guinness. He's smoking a cigarette. He's talking to you about some Hemi 350, something that he saw once that was awesome. And he's not even, almost like, not even paying attention to what he's doing. And I'm just watching this genius, this beautiful painting emerge. Um, and it's just, it takes your breath away. It's like he's almost able to do it by accident. It's almost like it just, it comes out of him. And I've also seen him, like, do this this process of when he because his, his mind is going so fast all the time that by the time he does a sketch for a painting and starts painting it, he's already thought of 300 or 400 other ideas and other paintings that he'd rather be doing more than the painting he's doing right now. But he has to finish this painting because it's going to pay his mortgage. It's going to help keep his kids in school. It's going to put food on his table. Is how he makes a living. So he literally, it's almost like a a Herculean, Herculean physical effort to focus on that one piece until it's done because it, he's already on to something else. Um, he's the real deal. He's a natural talent. And I'm very, very envious of that in every aspect. But what I love about Simon is that when we talk and we hang out and we like each other as friends is that the ideas and the things that would emerge out of these creative sessions where we would hang out together were just uh, insane. I mean, it could be, you know, 17,000 ideas emerged over a two-week two session, and only one of them is good, but the fact that there were 17,000 ideas is insane. It's fantastic. And so when I started working with Simon on Melting Pot, one of the things that we started with is the same process that how Peter and I used to work for most of the books, not all of them, but most of the books that Peter Laird and I did was Peter and I would talk out the story I would usually write it out um, in, as a beat sheet in longhand, and then I would do the layouts. And then from the layouts, Peter and I would discuss them, and then he'd do the final script. And then from those layouts, we'd usually enlarge them and then light table them and, and, and work from the original layouts. And both of us, you know, uh, getting work on each single each page throughout. And with Simon, what he liked is he said, you know, usually I have to do all that myself, but I like the fact that you sort of paste it out for me, so all I have to worry about is making that particular panel cool or knowing what I have to accomplish on that particular page. So why don't we keep working in this fashion? So whether it be the Fact 2 movie adaptation, which was a 100-page book we did together, or Body Count, which was 100 pages, or Fistful of Blood, which was 100 pages, and that kind of thing. All the stuff that Simon and I did from that point on is that we'd talk out the idea. I would typically beat it into shape and write it and do the final script, but I would also provide him with, uh, with layouts for the entire thing. Um, and that was, and I used to think like my rough layouts, he would make look so incredibly cool <laughs> in a style, in a drawing style that I could never do. That it was um, exciting to me that uh, I, you know, I, I couldn't accomplish with my own work what he could. So it made, I felt like it made my drawings look even better. That's a good, it's a good partnership. <laughs> and he's great. He's, he, I call him my brother from another mother. It's a term probably widely used out there, but you know we, <laughs> we uh, we've known each other now for around twenty years, and uh, 
He's a, he's a great friend. Out of his mind, but he's a great friend. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to to chat with him too at some point soon. So I'll uh, I'll find out be, myself. We are doing a a new book of uh, Heavy Metal's publishing a new book of his called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Uh, first book hits the stores this coming Wednesday. I actually just read it today. Oh, good. Yeah, I was surpri- surprised that but you're not gonna... using his work on the cover. I was curious about that. Oh, on the cover of the book itself? Yeah. I think it's a hybrid. Um, Michael Mannheim, the creator of the concept that brought Simon in and a bunch of other artists, I don't know if that's a if that's a particular hybrid, like some busily, some maybe a busily drawing or something finished by somebody else. But uh, I know that he had a couple of other artists working on it. Um, and it, there's... And it might have been a continuity decision or a uh, meaning over the three issues because, uh, man, there's so many pieces, there's so many cover pieces and images that Simon did. We did like a special issue of Heavy Metal that had a Simon Bisley Four Horseman cover on it. So maybe uh, maybe that's why Michael chose that one, which is more of a hybrid as opposed to a specific Bisley one. But uh, yeah, Simon, I was going to say just, you know, it's a great thing to talk about because it's coming out and it's going to be 72 pages per issue for three issues. Um, one now, one out to San Diego, one in October. But if you're going to be at San Diego Comic Con, Simon, we're bringing Simon back to uh, Comic Con for the first time in five years, so you can stop by and say hi. Nice. You guys have a pretty uh, good presence at Comic Con. Yeah, we've been doing. Um, you know, we've had the same booth. You know, uh, fifteen, fifteen twenty nine. We've had the same booth space for I think fifteen years. So we're. Um, by 20 and we always have a, a great turnout from heavy metal fans that come by to see the latest madness and then I'm um, you know heavy metal such a small staff if anybody wants anything done with the turtles they usually find me at the heavy metal booth anyway so uh, it works out good for everybody <laughs> no um, conflict of interest no man it's like turtles and tits you know? it's like, uh... well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today Kevin I really appreciate it um my goodness, thank you. No, it was, it was a blast.